If you've been a longtime listener of Essence of Azeroth, then in many ways you already know the story of the Forsaken. The former denizens of the Kingdom of Lordaeron turned into an undead wave during the Third War of Warcraft III. The story of an undead nation trying to find its place in a hostile world is one that touches parts of all the major plot threads of Warcraft. The turning of Arthas into the Lich King, the corruption of the Sunwell to resurrect the Lich Kel'Thuzad, the tragedy at the Wrathgate, and even the Scarlet Crusade. These are all episodes in which we've touched on the Forsaken's role in the story, but never the main focus. And I think that's because the place of the Forsaken in the Warcraft narrative has always been tricky. Their initial portrayal in Vanilla WoW was that of a duplicitous, potentially lawful, evil faction that seemed to join the Horde for its own ends and not necessarily a greater good. This image wouldn't improve over the years, as its former leader and queen Sylvanas Windrunner would, in essence, drag the faction's image through the mud with her own machinations. Honestly, it's not until very recently with the arrival of former Princess of Lordaeron and Arthas' own sister, Kalia Menethil, that it felt like the Forsaken were finally given a chance to be more than just fodder and background characters. But there's a great many steps in between the downfall of Anderhal and the rise of the Forsaken Council and their current place in the Horde. And yes, a lot of it does involve Sylvanas, even if she's not quote-unquote truly a Forsaken. And hey, what is a Forsaken anyways? Well, there are rules to these things, and that's why on Essence of Azeroth today, we're going to look at the Forsaken, Warcraft's own true noble monstrosity trope, and see how the former humans of the Eastern Kingdoms went from a mindless horde to a member of the actual horde trying to find a place of their own, and now currently to a noble ancestry of humans attempting to change its public image. And that's going to take a while because it might honestly be a shorter list to ask who doesn't hate the Forsaken. It's um, not many. But even as we speak, old wounds are attempting to heal and grow flowers where once nothing could breathe life. A special thanks to all our Patreon subscribers, both past and present, as they are the lifeblood of keeping this show going. I'm also thrilled to announce that as of this past week and a half or so, Essence of Azeroth is the top listened to Warcraft podcast in North America. I couldn't have done it without all the people willing to give my silly little fever dream uh, a try, so thank you. And if you want to consider giving back, go subscribe over at www.patreon.com slash essence of Azeroth. And now on with the show. This is Essence of Azeroth. Promotional considerations for Kalimdor Public Radio and its affiliates are brought to you by the Zolomon Tourism Board, the Argent Dawn, and Apothecary Brand Embalming Fluid. Remember, if you wouldn't embalm your own mother with it, then it's not apothecary.
Hello again, gentle listener, for joining us once more in this delightfully devilish dance we call Broadcasting, for yet another episode of Dead and Loving It, brought to you all across Azeroth by the truly generous backing of Kalimdor Public Radio, and because Stormwind Public Access rejected us. As always, I am Lord Jenkins, your ghoulish host of garish merriment and delight, bringing you today's broadcast from a quaint hovel within wonderfully gloomy Tirisfall Glades. I won't say where, because the last time I made such an error, the Scarlet Crusade came upon my door and laid bags of flaming darkhound excrement upon my steps. And while Gordo saw this as a fortuitous meal, I failed to share the same excitement as my stitched-together brethren. Um, yes, very good. As you may know, the life of a forsaken is no mere walk in the park, which makes us a race acutely adept at the dispensing of droll yet useful advisement. Pick up your hearthstone now and give us a call with your questions. Love life no longer vibrant and living, thinking about changing classes. Perhaps you misplaced your ring finger in the night because your neighbor Nigel thought it would be funny to use it as bait out at the pond once again, and despite dying and growing as an undead person, you still can't overcome the stress that is your childhood bully. Or maybe something less specific. Regardless, and as always, we'll start with this week's letter, which comes to us from Gizbo, a gnome living in storm winds. He asks, Dear Jenkins, I moved to the big city from my home of Nomragon for love, but he doesn't seem to notice me, and I mean that literally. You see, Darren is a cheesemonger, and a particularly tall one at that. What do I need to do to break the ice so that I can, um, slice his cheese? Well, lactose-based on tundra notwithstanding, it seems you face a literal uphill battle, my dear. However... I hope you will take the advice of someone who learned this only in death, and that you miss the opportunities you don't take. So get up on that counter, look him straight in the eye, and ask him everything he knows about the best wine pairings in the Eastern Kingdoms. Who knows? Maybe you'll find that you go best with that aged Westfall cheddar. Ha ha ha! He wants Swiss cheese. Shh! Quiet, you! Or it's back to the wine cellar to dust the barrels. My word, what awful creatures these abominations are. And speaking of awful, we now have a question left via Hearthstone from a... human. Hmm. How droll. Um, yes. Hello. I want to know why you gross zombies think it's okay to keep on... like... living? If you died once, then it was probably a part of the Light's plan. And not only are you back in the Eastern Kingdoms, but I heard from my uncle Albert that you're making more zombies of radio signals from our hearthstones? Okay, love the show. Thanks. Bye. Hmm. Well, I'm sure your uncle is a lovely man with many intelligent thoughts. That is all hearsay and nothing more. It's unfortunate, but there are few ways to create any more zombies, as you put it. No, the Forsaken is a dying race, which is our curse to bear. 
and it's one that the light guides us through regardless, for even in the dark we all belong in its glow. We all have a purpose, friends, and right now mine is to go take my dear Gordo for a walk before he begins spilling sludge all over my new carpet. We do hope you'll join us again soon for another stimulating episode of Dead and Loving It. Take care. No, Gordo, bad, get, get off the human skin rug! Of all the playable races in World of Warcraft, the Forsaken are seemingly the one that, for the longest time, was relatively unchanged and, as they stand now, are the furthest away from where they began. A lot of this has to do with the aura of former queen and current penitent soul Sylvanas Windrunner, perhaps the most divisive figure in all of Warcraft lore. Much of this has to do with the meta-commentary around her and mainly how Blizzard has written the World of Warcraft story in the past decade. To many, Sylvanas has always been a poor leader and poor character, given massive amounts of plot armor while also having a fierce, villainous attitude towards people, places, and events. And that's all before she even became a raid boss. And for the longest time, I think it was easy to give it a pass, as hers and the Forsaken was a mission of vengeance against one man, Arthas Menethil, former prince of Lordaeron and the Eastern Kingdoms, turned Death Knight by the machinations of the Burning Legion for the purposes of weakening the races of Azeroth and prepare it for a coming invasion. However, said Hall Pass gets thrown out the door once we hit the death of the Lich King at the end of Wrath, which is where a lot of folks' issues with the story begin to appear. Arthas defeated and a new power sitting on the Frozen Throne to contain the Scourge forces, Sylvanas still isn't satisfied with the conclusion and, in a fit of trying to end her own pain, hurls herself off the Frozen Throne and into the Serenite spikes below, killing herself. Except, none of that happened in game. And it didn't happen in that moment. And I think this massive retcon, perhaps the biggest in the game's history, is where people lost the plot with Sylvanas, literally. Though technically the seeds for all of this were planted as far back as 2011 with the short story Edge of Night, only released online, it was still a strange retcon and justification for why Sylvanas had suddenly turned into a warmonger and dragged the Forsaken into war after war after war. However, and this is not the last time we're going to say this, we're not fully here to talk about Sylvanas. That is an episode in and of itself, and even though the Forsaken are very much defined by its former leader, it largely ignores the plight of the Forsaken as a people. We'll get to Sylvanas on the show in due time, but before all of that, let's once more highlight who we're talking about. The Eastern Kingdoms and Lordaeron were a bastion of power and wealth and one that stood the barrage in the Second War against a marching orc horde army directed by the hands of the Burning Legion. It could be argued that without Lordaeron, humanity would have fallen then and there. It's with this knowledge in mind that sparks Sargeras, Archimonde, and the Legion to specifically target the Eastern Kingdoms as ground zero for its new campaign. Enter the Lich King the broken soul of the orc shaman Nerzul tied to a mystic artifact of great power called the Frozen Throne and hurled through space, crash landing into Northrend. 
It's a power so great that it literally begins infecting the land itself and raising the dead into nightmarish ghouls and monstrosities. However, the throne would need time to charge, essentially, and the armies of man would need to be weakened. And this was the perfect time, because the period between the Second and Third War is a time of turmoil across Azeroth. The orcs as a people are stranded on a new, strange planet. Stormwind was raised to the ground as and is in a period of rebuilding. Relations between the various human nations has never been worse, with Kaltiris and Gilneas both considering their independence. The High Elves continue to have issues with the local troll populations, and demon sightings are becoming all the more common across all continents. In other words, this was the time for a tactical strike, and the Legion does so with the help of the Cult of the Damned and a still human Kel'Thuzad, at that time still High Magus of the Kirin Tor in the city of Dalaran. We've covered the big broad strokes of the story once before, so go check out the Death Knight and Naxxramas episodes if you're looking for more details on that. A lot happens all at once in the story here, with Arthas turning, the Eastern Kingdoms falling to ruin, the Lich King's power charges up enough that he begins raising the recently dead citizens of Lordaeron and the surrounding areas, and forging a massive Scourge army in the process. As we would find out later, what is especially cruel about all of this is that each and every undead is fully unaware of what is being forced upon them, but they are aware of their actions. A thing that, when their freedom is gained, will drive many of them to madness in their undeath and unable to cope with the stress of what they've done. This is also why I've always found the Forsaken to be interesting, because there's not many instances of this type of trope used in regards to the standard zombie story in general fiction. This is especially true during the early 2000s and beyond, as zombie stories began to be incredibly popular popular in the overall zeitgeist of the world. I mostly blame this for The Walking Dead. But since the days of George Romero, the fictional use of zombies has almost always been as a bludgeon, an undead wave meant to represent societal woes and channel the worst of what humanity can potentially be. The closest we get to what the Forsaken story ends up being is that of Frankenstein and the idea of the noble monster, someone trying to forge an identity in undeath but not allowed because of the hostility of the world around them. And that is exactly what the Forsaken wake to once the power of the Lich King wanes and the now undead denizens of the Eastern Kingdoms come back to life. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. In 
In a pretty major deviation from past game design, it was revealed this week that Blizzard put a way into the game to time travel. And no, I don't mean Chromie. Added with the Hallow's Eve event is a special item drop from the Headless Horseman fight. Key. However, this is a key that unlocks one of the most historical and important non-exogenical locations in World of Warcraft for a certain sect of the player base. This key takes players back in time and allows access to all four of the original versions of the Scarlet Monastery, as they were back in WoW. You know, the original one. And for the first time since Cataclysm. This news is big for a lot of reasons. First, it highlights an interesting technical aspect of the game and how dungeons, raids, and instances are stored. Apparently, the OG monastery has just been on the WoW server sitting dormant, unconnected to anything, and in this case, all Blizzard had to do was just reconnect it. But it's important from a historical standpoint because I think for many original players, the Scarlet Monastery represented a branching point for MMOs and what they could be. In the middle of your leveling experience was this massive and varied and oppressive dungeon experience, almost like a Dungeons and Dragons campaign or one-shot. It's truly an iconic moment going up that forlorn hill for the very first time, fighting your way in, and slowly peeling back its layers like a big ol' corrupted onion. Not only that, but it made the Scarlet Crusade iconic as a villain. When it was taken out of the game in its full form and basically squished together, a lot of history and transmogs were lost, and this includes the hidden sequence we talked about back in the Nax Ramus episode, where players with the original Ashbringer could bring the sword into the final hall of Scarlet Monastery and get a whole event story sequence. All of that is back, which is good for fans of the Forsaken because it's hard to talk about them without being tied to the Crusade. One begat the other, and in many ways, both were being played for fools to keep the engine of war moving. We talked about it last episode when we focused on the Scarlet Crusade, about how the motivating factor for the Crusade's formation was one part a power grab and another part bigotry, but it also involved demon possession and revenge, as most things do. After all, an undead horde now controlled the regions where humanity was once its most powerful and wearing the faces of its deceased loved ones to boot. Enter that undead horde, now free from the grasp of the Lich King. How? Think of the Frozen Throne like a beacon or a radio signal. While encased in this magical ice, Ner'zhul's ability to command necromancy was at its most powerful, able to raise and control the undead over a blanketed area. However, that ability significantly diminished once Arthas and the former orc shaman merged into one being, cracking the Frozen Throne's font of power with it. This essentially freed all undead from the thrall of their former master, minus the ones in Northrend and those who would eventually be raised into undeath by this new Lich King himself and directly by his necromancy. This is also why it's made such a big deal at the end of Wrath that there must always be a Lich King. Refreezing himself and becoming one with the throne, Bolvar Fordragon is able to sway the subconsciousness of the Scourge Horde that was now running amok. And that brings us to the Forsaken, a class of undead specifically made up of the denizens of Lordaeron, waking up from the control of the Lich King to a new world, their homeland in a poisonous ruins and their own bodies changed forever. Add into the fact that each Forsaken had complete memories of whatever acts they were forced to perform by the Lich King, and you can see why some just fell to madness, 
unable to cope with the psychic trauma of what they'd been through. However, for the ones that didn't go mad was maybe the worst scenario of all. Suddenly they were in a world that saw them as its biggest threat and faced with enemies on all sides, quite literally. The leftover human forces of the Alliance and its allies, Scarlet Crusade, the High Elves whose city was burned to the ground by the undead, the nation of Gilneas which closed its borders to hide from the undead wave, and everyone else. And when you have nobody to turn to, you turn to whoever offers you a unifying hope. Enter Sylvanas Windrunner, former High Elf General and perhaps the most well-known victim of Arthas Menethil. Killed and pulled into undeath by Arthas at the Sunwell, Sylvanas was turned into a banshee and unwillingly served a new master. However, much like the Forsaken, she too was given back her free will once Arthas changed forms. Lost, angry, and searching for her lost love and former pupil, the human ranger Nathanos. Nathanos? Nathanos? You know, early on I always thought it was Nathanos uh, until I heard somebody else say it and it, I always want to say Nathaniel. Um, we're going to go with Nathanos. <laughs> Nathanos. Sylvanas had another problem. The Nathrezim who she once worked with in the Scourge, specifically Veramathras. The Dreadlord and his brethren had taken control of the Plaguelands and, in absence of Arthas, gave Sylvanas an ultimatum. Join us or suffer. Forming a squadron of possessed local warlords, including a massive murloc known only as the Murloc Puddle Lord. Give me that lore, Blizzard, come on, give me a scenario, I need to play as the Murloc Puddle Lord. <laughs> Sylvanas prepared an attack on the castle of Lordaeron or specifically the new Undercity that had formed as a growing Dreadlord Zone of Power. It's here that Sylvanas discovered a displaced and confused Forsaken people, finding similar bonds with these folk who were now forced to do terrible things and then live with the consequences. It's here that Sylvanas made a promise. Join me and nobody will ever challenge your place in the world and your right to live or unlive ever again. And so, for the first time, the Forsaken army fell upon the Undercity and made the Dreadlords and Veramathras bend the knee, who immediately pleaded for mercy from the Dark Ranger Sylvanas. And so, the dark work could begin. Whether we're talking about the OG starting area or the updated one from Kata, the Forsaken starting zone and quest is perhaps the best one in the game save for the hero class introductions. I think it's because it has an actual flavor and story to it, not left to being some open-ended, well your training is finally complete young one, now go off into the world. Instead, as a Forsaken, you awake in a crypt as a recently risen undead, brought to life by Sylvanas into a new dark world. The Banshee Queen has spent her time freeing as many undead as possible from the Lich King's former clutches, all to grow her kingdom and army. As a newly awakened Forsaken, the starting zone does a great job of explaining the situation and providing ambiance in a way that the other starting zones just don't always do, or maybe don't get the chance to do, really. Tirisfall Glades is also kind of an interesting starting zone as well, 
as it's just surrounded by absolute death on all sides for new players. If you go east, you go into the western plaguelands and immediately get killed. If you go up to the, the hill where the Scarlet Monastery is, you immediately get killed. If you try to swim the lake and head in Hillsbrad, yes, you guessed it, you immediately get killed. It's like playing the old fantasy star RPGs on Genesis and accidentally taking the wrong turn from one of the like starting villages and ending up in an area that has in-game level enemies who just kill you in one hit. And in that way, it did make the Forsaken leveling experience extremely linear and difficult, especially in Vanilla WoW. You could continue over to Silverpine, but that was your only real canon story direction if you didn't want to just immediately take a Zeppelin to Thunderbluff. And speaking of Thunderbluff, the connection between the Tauren and the Forsaken is an interesting one, because it's how the race of undead former humans comes into the Horde. In many ways, Sylvanas' early plans for the Forsaken is one of duplicitousness. Approached by an apothecary named Putris, he tells the Banshee Queen that he's been working on a plague to kill the dead and fight back against Arthas. However, Sylvanas doesn't want to stop there. As far as she's concerned, all life is an enemy to her new kingdom. Dubbing Putris her new Grand Apothecary, she commands him to begin workshopping a version deadly to all things living or dead. If this sounds familiar, then you are right, as this is the plague used at the Wrathgate that almost kills Arthas and decimates both Alliance and Horde armies. And what's interesting is that there was some extremely early plans to make the Forsaken a third, completely independent faction in WoW, with players able to pick any race and play an undead version. However, this was all during the game's blue sky phase of creation, which was actually taking place during Warcraft 3. So we're, we're, we're talking still in the process of figuring that story out. And it quickly, the team realized that it wasn't a feasible plan, both from a logistical but also a gameplay perspective. And more to that, the inclusion of the Forsaken in World of Warcraft as a playable race was kind of a last minute thing anyways, because they wanted some kind of fun, like evil alignment uh, race to play as. And that's where they kind of line up what we landed on doing with the Forsaken, even though their storyline hadn't been fully fleshed out yet in the process of writing Warcraft 3. So how did the Forsaken end up in the Horde? Sylvanas realized that she needs allies of some kind in a world that seems completely hostile. And so she sent emissaries out to all the factions of Azeroth. As we mentioned once before, the one sent to Stormwind never returned. However, the Tauren and specifically Archdruid Hamul Runetoden of the Earthen Ring were empathetic to the plight of this new race in a harsh world. What's funny is that both sides are somewhat playing each other. Despite hating all life, the Forsaken claim that it's only the healing powers of the Tauren Shaman that can help find a cure for their undeath, which they claim is their only goal. Meanwhile, then leader of the Tauren, Agatha Grimtoden, who had her own agenda, also claimed that she just wanted to help the Forsaken out of the goodness of her heart. So nice. Politically caught in the crosshairs, Warchief Thrall was stuck between a rock and a hard dead place. He didn't trust the Forsaken, but the Tauren's sway over the Council of Druids that we referred to earlier, the Earthen Ring, reminded Thrall that at one point the orcs were also seen as unredeemable. And so the Warchief acquiesces, with Tauren leader Karen Bloodhoof reluctantly agreeing. 
In many ways, this seals the Elder Tarn's own fate, as ten years later, he would be slaughtered by Garrosh Hellscream in yet another power play for control of the Horde. And that brings us to the start of World of Warcraft. The Forsaken are the lawful evil aspect of the Horde, but also give a foothold for the faction in the Eastern Kingdoms. Literally, it's only one until the Burning Crusade. From here until Wrath of the Lich King's start, the Forsaken story is a somewhat mundane one, far less fleshed out than the other races. Involved here and there, the Forsaken story until Wrath is mostly about fighting back the Scourge and developing their plague wherever they go, including in Outland. But Northrend and the Wrathgate loom over the story ever present. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When I say that the Forsaken for the longest time were a non-factor in their own story, it's moments like the Wrathgate incident that come to mind, and it's also a place where I will find criticism with WoW's so-called best expansion. If ever there was a time for the Forsaken to get some shine and discover who they were, then it should have been the content where their creator and biggest villain gets his. Instead, the Forsaken are somewhat lumped into a bunch of bad faith actors, and then shoved to the side. And this is a criticism of WoW as a whole, and something I've talked about before. The problem of what happens after Blizzard's hot new toy gets used and put back in the box. Like how we've never gotten continuations of the Blood Elf or Draenei storylines, or why Gilneas City still sits in state where it was in Kata. That problem works the other way too. Races, factions, and more being used as fulcrums for which to pivot the story for something else. So is the case of the Forsaken and their role in Northrend, basically serving as a non-factor in the story until being used as a convenient backdrop in the battle for Undercity. And if you want more info on that, I highly recommend you go back and listen to our Wrathgate episode, as that show in particular was a big moment for the podcast. One, it was the first episode where I upgraded my microphone and recording routines, so that's something I'm still really proud of, even now. It was also the first skit attempt with original writing, shoutouts to KPR. But for today, the only thing you really need to know is that the Forsaken War Machine in Northrend really had its own agenda, and that was finalizing the plague that the Forsaken intended to use to finish its enemies off while also adding to its own forces. And this isn't to say that there isn't some interesting bits for the Forsaken and Wrath. For one, this is where we see the Valkyr introduced to the canon. Once the spirit maidens of the Vrykul turned into subservience against their will by Odin for the purposes of creating his Valhalla, the Lich King took interest in these Angels of Death and quickly launched attacks on the Vrykul settlements of Northrend. Looking to turn this power of undeath for his own uses and gain mass control over the dead like he once had, the Valkyr will continue to stick around in the story 
all the way up to Shadowlands, where the pact-sworn Valkyr of Sylvanas, who brought her back from her own suicide attempt, then turn into a raid boss at the Tower of Domination. But for the most part, if you're forsaken and wanting to see something for your race in Wrath, it doesn't happen until the fateful Wrathgate and Grand Apothecary Putris revealing his ruse, attacking dead and alive alike, all part of a pact that he made with the Dreadlords who once ruled over the Plaguelands and now saw it time to take back the Undercity. Sylvanas had been played all along, with the Dreadlords using her own machinations against her. Alas, this is also the event that kicks off Horde versus Alliance hostilities for the next 14 years or so of real-world releases. And that's why, honestly, we're gonna skip ahead a bit. As I mentioned, this episode isn't about Sylvanas. It's about the Forsaken. And if we're talking the Forsaken, the major lore moments aren't plentiful. But they are some of the most impactful in the game. This includes the attack on Undercity and the eventual turn to undeath of yet another Minithil family member and two capital cities being removed from the game during Battle for Azeroth. You know, everyone's favorite expansion. <coughs> mm. Mm. I know I keep saying that this isn't a Sylvanas episode, but... Look, look, be cool. It's impossible to talk about the Forsaken without talking about her, capital H. And it's impossible to talk about her without acknowledging that she went from being a fan favorite in the early days of WoW to somewhat of a litmus test for fans as to where you stand about the game's lore. A lot of players blame the overexposure and overuse of Sylvanas on the game's storyline woes post-Legion as the double whammy of Battle for Azeroth and Shadowlands basically became the Sylvanas Windrunner heel turn smile time family variety hour guest starring her forsaken schmucks. And I'm not here to judge whether or not the retcons to make a Sylvanas turning bad guy storyline and if it's bad or not, or if the connections to the Jailer were just a knee-jerk reaction to create content that got people excited again, or any of that. As always, I'm not here to talk about the lore that should or should not have happened, but what actually did. And what happened is that, in regards to Sylvanas, they took the best path they could for a game that had a story going on for over a decade, and they tried something. It failed. That doesn't mean it wasn't worth a shot. But her eventual turn to bad guy comes off worse considering the fact that we had just lived through the exact same thing with Garrosh Hellscream no less than three expansions ago. And here we are, doing it again. Yay. If you were a fan of the Horde, then there really isn't anything to be excited about during this period, as all of your leaders either turned evil or died. Even worse, if you like the Forsaken, they are essentially being used for cannon fodder to support Sylvanas and her regime. And yet, there is hope in the darkness. Of course I would say that, I'm a priest main. <laughs> so let's jump to that. The drums of the Fourth War begin to beat. Alliance and Horde relations are the hottest they've ever been. And even though the two factions united under a banner to help defeat the Legion and keep Azeroth safe, a powerful new resource flooding the planet has once again ignited the war machine. The Azerite Ore appearing all over Azeroth spells victory for whichever side can control it. And this immediately sends Sylvanas into Warhawk mode. 
looking to tear the Alliance apart from the inside, she strikes up a campaign against the Night Elves to not only cripple what remains of the Alliance Navy post-Legion, but also looks to kill Malfurion Stormrage, who she sees as a representative of the Alliance's spirit. However, there's a third motivation at work that gets retconned in during Shadowlands, that Sylvanas, ever since her suicide, has been working for the Jailer, an ancient being who resides in the afterlife of the Shadowlands and wants to rebuild the living world in his image as to prepare for great evil and catastrophe that looms. As part of this, he tasks Sylvanas with a simple job, kill as many people and create as much mayhem as possible in Azeroth as to fuel the soul engines of the Shadowlands for his own ends. And what better way to kill people than a world war? And so we see two events happen into the lead up to Battle of Azeroth. The latter, the War of Thorns, and the former, the Battle of Lordaeron. Two scenarios that massively affect both Horde and Alliance, storyline-wise, but also gameplay-wise. For the Alliance, it leads to the destruction of the Night Elf home of Teldrassil, a campaign of violence and revenge by Tyrande Whisperwind, and the eventual joining of Night Elves to the Druid of the Flame in the upcoming 10.2 Dragonflight patch. For the Horde, the Battle of Lordaeron lost them the Undercity, and in a move against her own people meant to sow distrust and stoke rage. She bombs her own city with an unremovable plague meant to look like a strike by the Alliance. It's also the event that officially kicks off the Fourth War and the battle for Azeroth expansion. For better and for worse. However, there is a bright side. The Forsaken do finally get the spotlight in this content a little bit, and finally get a true leader. Enter Kalia Menethil. The Menethil family has always had an interesting place in the canon, as they always felt like the official story went out of its way to not talk about Arthas' own family. Minus Arthas, the undead dog, which you can now get as a pet in World of Warcraft. <laughs> For years, there was rumors about a certain NPC being the actual sister of Arthas hiding under a different identity, but I think it was more that she was an afterthought and a character mostly developed in the extended universe of novels and comics. At one point, she was to be wed to Deval Prestor, who we all know better as the human visage of Deathwing. It wouldn't be until Legion that the real, official Kalia Menethil would appear in-game, now a priest and part of the Priest Legion Class Hall campaign, working alongside Forsaken Alonzus Fael, former Archbishop of the Church of the Light, turned Forsaken during the Third War, and responsible for saving and protecting Kalia during the Scourge invasion of Lordaeron. And if you need to know what purpose Kalia serves in the narrative, it's simply put, she seems like the only person thinking rationally at any given moment. She's the only person around that both sides ever seem to trust. The Forsaken people know her as their former princess, she has friends in the Alliance even still with Jaina and Andwen and others. A good lady, all around. 
So of course, Sylvanas hates her and sees the former Princess of Lordaeron as a problem. This leads us to another important moment in the lore, as it's the thing that I think truly earns Sylvanas the mantle of bad guy, while still feeling like it's a natural character action and not plot armor nudging her in the general direction of the Jailer. The Gathering takes place in secret, before the War of the Thorns, but written as part of the novel Before the Storm, which sets up Battle for Azeroth. In it, Archbishop Fael highlights an important part of the forsaken life and culture, coming to terms with your old life, in relation to your undeath. And it's one of the things about forsaken lore that I love, and they don't skip over it or mock it or side-eye the trauma that comes along with coming back from the dead. They value true free will and the fight that comes with earning that power, with New Forsaken going through group therapy sessions and talking about their feelings and what it's like to actually go through that process. In many ways, it makes the Forsaken all the more relatable, and when I play the class in-game, I really think about that from a role-playing perspective. The idea of not giving up on the past is important to a lot of Forsaken, including Fail, who wants to try and find a way to unite the two broken parts of the Forsaken their former roots as citizens of Lordaeron and humanity, and their new reality as Forsaken. To this end, and with the help of Kalia, who hid her identity, he reaches out to King Anduin and Sylvanas to discuss a one-day ceasefire meant to unite the families that still exist that were splintered by the Scourge Plague. The two sides agreed and met in the highlands of Varathi, with strict rules in place a limited number of participants, an army of 200 warriors on each side, and limits on what either side could say or not say. What's interesting about The Gathering is the political plays at work, and I cannot recommend enough the Before the Storm novel as it might be the best thing that came out of Battle for Azeroth. On the Alliance side, you have Anduin trying to decide if there's anything redeeming left in Sylvanas but also trying to discern where the hearts of the Forsaken are at. For Sylvanas, this is both an opportunity to worm her way into the good graces of the Alliance, and also doubles as an emergency button to kickstart the war early if things don't go to her liking. As Nathanios Blightcaller tells Sylvanas, it allows her to give a gift to her increasingly trusting Forsaken citizens, while also giving her an in for overtaking Stormwind. And so the two leaders meet on the fields of Arathi before the event, with a hard truth coming out in the process. Antwin asks Sylvanas if she's responsible for his father's death at the Battle for the Broken Shore, to which she says that the numbers were so against them that there was nothing that anyone could do. Perhaps the first true thing she has said in almost a decade. The honesty and the hopefulness ends there, as a reveal of Kalia, I'm gonna keep saying Kalia, Kalia's identity seals the fates of everyone and kicks the fourth war into motion. A number of Forsaken there that day realize it is Kalia Menethil, their former princess among them, and sees it as a sign to defect to the Alliance. Thinking that this was their moment, a family of Forsaken begin walking to the Alliance side before all hell breaks loose. Sylvanas orders everyone on the field, including every Forsaken participating, to be slaughtered, while the Alliance attempts to evacuate. 
In the process, Kalia jumps into the fray and, attempt and attempts to shield her former people and suffers for it, taking an arrow through the heart and dying. Sylvanas takes this news back to Undercity and uses it as an excuse to say that the humans would never accept a Forsaken, while Anduin sees the event as confirmation that no humanity remains in Sylvanas Windrunner. Meanwhile, Kalia's body is taken back to the priest's Netherlight Temple and resurrected using the light, which brings her back as a different kind of undead. Gray skin, golden eyes, clean complexion. Kalia is dead, but something different. And it's hard to say if this is an official canon thing or is just the result of her being brought back to life by a Naru. For a while, some thought that the special undead would be something explained in the Shadowlands, but alas. However, there was now hope as the Forsaken's once princess began her path towards being their queen. I don't think anyone was sad about Sylvanas finally getting her heel turn and being removed from the Horde. It was a long time coming, to be honest, and she's a divisive character on a good day, and that's even before the complicated feelings about her retcons, the Jailer, and basically being the lore figure who kills all your favorite characters. The revealing of her true intentions with the death of Sarfang is a truly great and fantastic moment in Warcraft lore, one of the best of recently, and I highly recommend you go see it in-game for yourself if you've missed it. As for this Forsaken, they don't go long without a leader, as the former Scarlet Crusade member turned undead, Lillian Voss, who has risen the ranks of the Horde, takes over as a temporary leader while Kalia begins to get her footing underneath her. Eventually, the desolate council that once led Undercity when Sylvanas was away doing Warchief stuff formed again once more, with Voss, Kalia, Fael, an apothecary, a Darkstalker, and a Dark Ranger taking the lead of the Forsaken race. You get to see this play out if you complete the retaking of Undercity event that popped into the game, uh, right around the time of Shadowlands, I believe, which also ties into the Forsaken Heritage quest. And the funny thing about Kalia rising to the ranks of the Pallid Queen in the story is that her inclusion was somewhat a complete accident. Novelist Christy Golden used her in Before the Storm on a lark and without any pushing from Blizzard, and the lore designers decided to run with it. Weird, it's almost like having an accomplished writer working on your game can pay off or something. Hmm. What's next for the Forsaken, though? If all the rumors are true, then a Void Lord's expansion could factor the Forsaken into it somehow, as Kalia is still a priest, and now an undead who can wield the light without hurting her. Netherlight is also home to the Cult of the Forgotten Shadow, the Shadow Priests once formed by ex-bishop Natalie Selene, who inspired the Forsaken Priests to learn about the balance of light and dark. Given that Selene once carried the possessed knife-turned-void-lord's fangirl Zolototh, it's entirely possible that the Forgotten Shadow could once more appear. And as for Sylvanas, well, like we said, that's another story altogether. However, we do know that she continues her new mission of liberating the souls she damned to the Shadowlands one at a time. Thank you for joining me on this extra-long episode of EOA. 
Special thanks goes out to the wonderful and talented and fantastic Lehman Kessler for his part in this week's KPR segment. And if you're on TikTok, you can find him over at Mayor Lovecraft, all one word. Go give him a follow. He's extremely entertaining. <laughs> Always has been. Next time on Essence of Azeroth, what happens when something is canon, but not canon? We're going to be talking about the DC Comics World of Warcraft comic series, how it massively affected the canon of WoW, and how it also created some characters you may have never heard of. Like Medivh's half-orc son, who has Atesh, great staff of the Guardian. What? Yep, that happened. Until next time. you, or it's back to the wine cellar to dust the barrels. <laughs>